Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Kevin Kwashi is the featured author on this installment of New Books in African American Studies, the interview series where writers of African American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. Hello, I'm Vershawn Young, your host, and today I'll be talking with Kevin about his new book, The Sovereignty of Quiet, Beyond Resistance in Black Culture, published in 2012 by Rutgers University Press. I hope you'll stay tuned for this lively exchange with the author. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Versan. How are you doing? Very well. Thanks for asking. Today, we're talking with Kevin Kwashi. He teaches in Afro-American studies and in the study of women and gender at Smith College. He is the author of Black Women, Identity and Cultural Theory, as well as New Bones, an anthology of contemporary black writers in America. Kevin Kwashi's new book, which we are discussing today, is called The Sovereignty of Quiet, Beyond Resistance in Black Culture. It's published by Rutgers Press, Rutgers University Press in 2012. We're delighted to have Kevin on the show today. Kevin, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yes. um, As you mentioned, I teach at Smith College, and um, I was actually born in St. Kitts in the Caribbean, and uh, but moved to the States at a young age and um, lived in Miami, Florida, which is where my parents still live. Um, Did high school and undergrad in um, Miami and then moved around Michigan, Ohio, Arizona for graduate school. Um, and then ended up in Northampton. Um, so I, that would that would be a brief exposition of of my journey in that regard. Okay, Kevin, can you tell us what made you or what led you to write the sovereignty of quiet? Mm. I think, and and maybe this is true for you. I think it's true for many people who write anything or who do anything creative. It really came out of my own trying to think about my experience in the world as a human being who's black. And part of it might be being introverted, though uh, as an introvert, I'm not necessarily not social, um, but being aware of how ideas of what blackness is or means, positive or negative ideas, differed from my own wild sense uh, my my sense of who I was, my my sense of my interior life, um, and there was for me always trying to figure out how to negotiate and engage and think about these very prominent ideas, um, ones that are formal, informal, ones that are explicit, ones that are implicit ideas about blackness, and yet. Blackness was also part of me, part of my identity. And so in trying to figure that out, um, I, I was trying to find a word or a term to describe myself, to describe my experience of the world, um, 
to reflect my inner life and um, thus began my thinking probably 12, 13 years ago to begin to start to write about quiet and black culture. And um, I was especially motivated by the fact that so much of black culture is thought of as being loud, colorful, dramatic, all of which makes sense historically. And if you're thinking about aesthetic features of black culture, there are lots of, there's, there's a lot of legitimacy to that. But those ideas um, didn't seem to have room for a concept of quiet, and yet quiet was so essential to me. So it really, it really was in some ways a very personal um, uh, beginning to this project, though I don't write about um, the, the, the ideas in the book from a kind of first-person or personal perspective. Can we ask why not? Why do you leave out the personal? Ah, that's a good... Um, part of it might be a little bit of shyness. Maybe part of it is thinking I wanted to try to see if I could articulate these ideas. You know, I found so much... I found so much to use and to mine and to be inspired by from works by black women, writers and artists especially. And that had been true in my own life also, that there are ways that black women writers, especially in the 18, in the, 18, in the 1980s and 1990s, were negotiating what it meant to be alive in a way that was about more than just race. They didn't ignore race, of course, um, and they engaged gender and sexuality, but they engaged other things. For lack of a better phrase, they engaged being human. And so I always found myself returning largely to those works. There, there are also works by black men that, that do this. Um, but it was very noticeable to me um, that that was something that I was attracted to. And I think because of that, um, if anything, I wanted to try to honor or use or um, work off of their ideas since I was so inspired by them. And perhaps part of what now that this book is out, um, maybe it does open up room for me to be a little bit more comfortable with um, working off of first person. But at the point I was writing the book, I was just trying to explain something that I thought I understood. You know, I wasn't trying to make an argument. Um, I, I, I wasn't trying to, to say that this is the only idea. I was just, here's something I thought I understood, and I wanted to see if I could try to explain it. Um, and as an introverted and somewhat shy person, I think I, I wasn't ready yet you know, to get on stage, um, but maybe, maybe now. Okay, I, I, I totally understand, but I have to tell you, as I was reading the book, um, when I was done, I was thinking, where is the personal element here? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the reason why, we, we talked in the pre-show conversation a bit about my own commitment to the first person in my academic work, and I am unequivocally committed to the first person. But So I'm always looking for what is at stake for the author mm. in this project, and I I think I got it, um, but wanted to ask you directly what's at stake here 
for you, and you and you um, you answered that partially. But if there's more you want to say on that, uh, we'd we'd like to hear it. Mm. I think it's so. It's good to be pushed on this because I think part of it is being a, a a a person in process, right? Being a human being in the sense that we are all being made and we're all making decisions and revising decisions and um so what's at stake for me in this book was maybe clearing a space for an idea that i could then later write through or exist through in another way and i don't mean to say that in some grand notion of this idea now changes uh, thinking about African American studies, African American culture. I'm I'm fortunate to to have a job that let me study and teach and read. Um, I know how privileged that is. Um, so I don't need anything more than that. But if the idea of quiet exists now in my mind, it might make more room for me to be able to say, okay, I am. I want to write from this thing that happened. And I always imagined that I would write this book next to another one, one that would be completely personal, almost like an extended first-person essay that would begin, I am a child of quiet. Mm. And I didn't do that partly because I'm, I wasn't ready. I'm not, uh, I don't yet have the, the skills of essay writing. You know, I've read your work, and I'm a fan of your work. Um, and I think what you do with first person is so accomplished because it's not just using examples from your life to show how exemplary you are or what you encountered is or what you know is. It's more using examples from your life as if you're trying to think and study through the messiness of it. And I don't think I understood that uh, dynamic of first person well enough to be able to do anything other than write this this book that I wrote. But I'm, I'm getting there. And in the acknowledgments, um, at the end of the book, um, I begin by saying perhaps the most uh, first-person thing in the book. I write that the book is inspired and dedicated to many black women mm -hmm. and black feminist scholars and artists, mm -hmm. especially in the 80s and 90s, whose thinking has changed my own. Mm -hmm. Many of them are named in the preceding pages, and I'd like to add one more, Monique Savage. And I, I hope that a reader, if a reader makes it through the book, hears that as my own slim manifestation on the page um, and acknowledges that that's, you know, all of us are dynamic, rich, wild, complicated, flawed people. And that little glimpse of me that's there, that's just a glimpse of, I hope, of that dynamism. But I'm... I'm so glad you asked this because I think I'm beginning to think about studying the essay and trying to understand it and think about whether as a form it is something, the first person essay, whether as a form it's something that I can use. But yes, I'm a child of quiet. If I have to go back and say where this book comes from, it comes from the fact that I am a child of quiet and I was trying to describe an idea that could fit me as a human being who is black in the world and who encounters and struggles through all of these ideas of blackness.
Mm-hmm. Let me challenge uh, the concept of quiet for a moment in mm-hmm. a um, friendly way. Uh, someone might argue that black people have spent so much energy and time just trying to be heard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and now uh, Kevin Kwashi is theorizing quiet in relationship to um black expressivity as often equated with resistance. So how and why is quiet important to uh, the common trope or understanding of black expressiveness as resistance? Mm. This is why for me the term quiet was more useful than the term silence because not only does silence come with all of that baggage, but Silence also connotes the absence of something or something that's withheld or something that's suppressed. And I wanted an idea that could reflect, as I said earlier, the wildness of the inner life. So quiet isn't about not being expressive, right? Because one can say, um, uh, one can refer to an arch- uh, architecture of a building as quiet, or one could even say a song is quiet. Um, one can say that a, a poem is quiet. So quiet can reflect and speak to uh, expressiveness. What I was trying to do um, is to notice the ways that uh, we sometimes don't pay as much attention to the inner life, the inner qualities of of um, of aliveness uh, that black subjects and, and ultimately black people have, because we are so focused on the publicness of the discourse, the socialness of the discourse. That blackness is a is a social term, and um, it's almost like, and this might be. I, I hope I can say this clearly, because I wouldn't want to misspeak um, that. The idea of blackness announces what is not human or what is less than human. Now, one can figure humanity through it, right? But the humanity of black people is not taken for granted. Now, of course, of course, people who are black are also human beings. That's true. Uh, That there's no... um, that's not in question. It becomes in question in a world that thinks of and engages black people in particular ways. But it's interesting how that that struggle for and through uh, negotiating the humanity piece, uh, that it doesn't, it almost doesn't allow black people to just be people. So I... I was trying to find a way to say that resistance is such a powerful and important frame for understanding black cultural history, black people's experience, or indeed for understanding any human being's experience. But it's only one frame, and it's become such a dominant trope, a dominant way to look through and to think about and to understand works by black people that I wondered if we weren't missing things. So even in texts that are explicitly resistant, are we missing other aspects of what's being discussed because we're looking through what's so familiar? Um, uh, And so I was trying, you know, I'm not at all interested in 
getting rid of resistance, getting rid of that kind of engagement of public discourse and the way in which expressiveness can be so dynamic and powerful. But I was trying to understand, too, what we might miss because of the power and singularity of that of that idea. And uh, goodness knows that I um, I'm not entirely sure that it's that I've got it, but that I'm, I'm you know, I'm working through this. I'm working through this idea of, of quiet. Very nice. Maybe you can locate or specify what you're talking about with an example or, or two, perhaps yeah. from, perhaps dealing with the cover art, which you theorize in the introduction or your um, uh, discussion of the 1968 Olympics. Yeah, it, 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 I was actually thinking about that as I was giving, um, uh, responding to your last question. Uh, so that moment in 1968, the Summer Olympics, a moment that, that we know so well because it's so iconically represented of Tommy Smith and John Carlos on the podium during the medal ceremony for the 200-meter race. Um, and they both thrust their fists in the air, punctuating the air as the national anthem plays as this sign of of protest. Um, and it, there's no denying that what they were doing was a protest, right? They were a part of an organized, the Olympic Project for Human Rights. Indeed, um, the other person on the podium, Peter Norman, who's a white Australian, he's wearing a button in support of that. Um, and so all of those striking images of these two people doing this brilliant, beautiful, public, social, graceful thing, this brave thing, uh, if you look at those images, both of them have their heads bowed. One of them has his eyes closed. Now. I wasn't alive during this. I, this was three years before I was born, but certainly I've seen the image countless times. I've always been attracted to that image. And there's certainly a lot of reasons why I might be attracted to it. There are people who look like I might look. Um, uh, there might even be a certain amount of um, being attracted to um, their beauty. But I was always... Like, I almost felt like I wanted to cry, like I was watching this exquisite thing when I saw this image. And for years, as a young person, I didn't know why, I didn't know why. And then I started reading about how people talked about it. And I agreed with how everyone talked about it, you know, the, the, the protests, how, how um, powerful it was, how... Uh, in some ways, perfect the gesture was. Um, I, I read about how they suffered as a result of this act that they were kicked out of the Olympics and indeed they returned to the United States um, uh, not as heroes as they might have been, not for not only for having won the race uh, or, or done well in the race, but um, for engaging this kind of public conversation. I mean, this is 1968, right? Perhaps one of the more volatile years in American history in terms of social movement. Um, so I read all of that. What I never heard expressed was the quality of quiet, the quality of prayer, the quality of surrenders, that thing, that inexpressible, beautiful 
thing, the thing that made that whole scene sublime. The fact that if you think that these two men are also in prayer, that all of a sudden you see and can start to think about their inner life. What must they be thinking? What must they be feeling? And not only think about the public aspect or the social aspect of what they're doing. And I don't want to ignore the social aspect, but that image is not powerful only because of the social aspect. And that moment is not powerful only because of that. It's powerful especially because two human beings who are black and male in this volatile context are doing this thing that's so clean and sweet and risky and vulnerable. Um, and I know vulnerability is hard to, to talk about in this moment because it has such powerful political significance. Um, but they're also doing this vulnerable thing that for me is, wow, it's, it still blows me away to try to think about talking about it. Um, and so I wanted to try and articulate that and reread that moment as a way of saying, um, this isn't about being passive. This isn't about not speaking out. This isn't about pretending that racism doesn't have profound and persistent impact on uh, black people's lives, etc. It is about trying to figure out how to make sure that, at least in my practice, wanting to see and acknowledge the inflections of the humanity, uh, the wide variety of inflections of the humanity of people who are black, and to be able to see it, to see them as human beings, not only see them through their struggle with these ideas of blackness. And and again, it, it's, you know, I, to enter that conversation about a moment that's so well discussed, um, uh, you know, it, it, I, I, I don't take it lightly, but at least I'm sure that from the first time I saw that image, it moved me in a way, and I was moved by something more than um, the public qualities or the social qualities of, of the moment. Yeah, one of the things that I really appreciate about your theorizing is that although you are critiquing the overprivileging of um, black culture, even black cultural studies and black humanity with um, the dominant uh, metaphor of expressivity, you're not discounting that, as you just said. But your work seems to me to be forming a sort of dialectic um dialogical conversation between things that might appear opposite but are not, such as resistance and vulnerability, which mm. which really, when you think about it, go hand in hand, especially yes. when we're talking yes. about um, black people. But before I extend this conversation, I do have another question along these lines for you. I want the readers to uh, the listeners to get a clear sense of how you're conducting your analysis. Would you tell us a little bit about your textual analysis and how the book um proceeds. Yes, yes. Um, before I say that, I want to say that part of what's great about having these kinds of conversations is um, you just made clearer something that's in the book um, uh, uh, that I that I don't think I 
had expressed as clearly as I could, which is the relationship between resistance and vulnerability is a is an essential relationship. Um, so thank you, thank you for that. I will now use that in some other, in some other context. So the the book begins with um, the moment I just talked about, the, this moment of Smith and Carlos on the podium uh, at Mexico City in 1968, and um, starts to ask the question about quiet, what keeps us from being able to see or think about um, this image and this moment in ways other than through resistance. And I, I start with uh, thinking about what quiet means and what how it's different from silence. And I use um, uh, another kind of iconic figure and iconic text, um, uh, Du Bois's, the first chapter from Du Bois's uh, The Souls of Black Folk, where he talks about double consciousness and try to show how double consciousness, um, though an important concepts for understanding and thinking about black people's experiences and sub and their subjectivity um, how it still seems to be tied to an idea of publicness and I pair that reading with um, reading a very short and uh, still I think uh, understudied or, or little studied work by Marita Bonner who was a, a writer um, a, you know a, a essayist and, and short story writer who lived um, during the era that most people call the Harlem Renaissance. Um, she lived uh, in Boston for a while, but then also lived in Chicago. And uh, she was also a playwright now that I think about it. She wrote this short essay called On Being Young, a Woman and Colored. And the essay is just fierce. It's just brilliant. It's, it's creative and it's wild. It's like 1700 words long it's not very long at all it's poetic and for me it's a twin of um, uh, that the first chapter of Du Bois's Souls of Black Folk except that she's arguing I think about quiet indeed she uses the word silence and that, you know one has to sometimes accept that quiet is a term I've chosen but silence is a, a term that she's using to characterize a very similar thing so once I've used Bonner, and it's important to me to use a work, a work by a black woman for what I've said before about the ways in which I've learned or grown in the company of, of, um, uh, of black women's thinking, um, once I've used Bonner to try to establish an idea of surrender or how surrender is a part of this idea of quiet and how surrender is agency and how the interior is dynamic um, and not only flat or passive, uh, I use that framework to walk through a variety of works. And so um, I think in the, in the next chapter, I talk about Gwendolyn Brooks's Maud Martha. And I have to say, before Miss Brooks passed away, she was here at Smith reading. And we had a crazy storm, as we so often have in the Northeast. And um, I had to, the, the ride service I was coming to get her couldn't come. And so I took her to the airport and we were talking about a variety of things. And I said to her in the kind of flourish of my youth, I said, oh yeah, I'm gonna write about Maud Martha someday. And she looked at me, um, she was just, um, she looked at me 
sweetly and in a kind of uh, adult black woman way, if I can say that. And she says, you will? And I said, yes, I will. And she says, no one ever writes about that book. And then I said to her with my, again, youthful, like completely ridiculousness, I said, I will write about that book. And, of course, there are people who have written about it. But I, I felt a sense of commitment then. But I love Maud Martha. Maud Martha is my Bible. It's it's her only novel, um, a very slim uh, book study of a, a young, dark-skinned black girl through her um, adulthood. But it's this episodic um a study of her life. It's just, it's a beautiful book. And I spend time with Maud Martha trying to understand and think about what quiet might look like. Then I move on to um, Baldwin's, James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, mm-hmm. to, because I want to think about, I don't only want to explore quiet through individual characters or individual experiences. I wanted to try to think, what would it mean for an idea of quiet to to be useful to how we think about collective experience or how we even think about um, black social movements? So I talk about Baldwin's The Fire next time. Um, I uh, talk about a poem by Nikki Giovanni. I talk a little bit about Elizabeth Alexander's reading of the inaugural poem at the um, first inauguration ceremony uh, for uh, President Obama, because I'm trying to, I talk about um, uh, Marlon Riggs's Black is Blacking, because I want to think about what, can we use quiet to think about how black artists and writers think about what it is to engage blackness as a collective idea. And and then I talk about uh, some poets uh, in, in, in the latter chapters and briefly engaged uh, Toni Morrison's Sula. But mostly, all the while, I was trying to figure out how to take an idea, uh, how to take this idea of quiet and use it to walk through different kinds of texts by black writers and by black artists. Very nice. Uh, so you were mentioning about your opening uh, discussion of Du Bois's double consciousness, and I just wanted to raise two questions. I'll, I'll raise them one at a time after you answer. Uh, one is, this is more of a comment and hoping that you might have a response. When I was reading your analysis, I kept thinking about what racism, um, social inequality, classism, etc., uh, due to uh, the, interi- the interior of um, African Americans, or what I think it does to mm. uh, uh, their in- interior, their psychology. And so when you critiqued Du Bois's um, idea, uh, not, not, not heavy-handedly, of course, but I kept thinking that one of the projects of that book was to show that um, decentering, um, how racism and segregation um, has this deep um, decentering effect on the black psyche. And so, when Du Bois is in moments of quiet himself in his in in the more um, memoiristic parts of the book, such as in on the meaning of progress, when he's on the train leaving. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, leaving Nashville, he is musing and thinking and sitting there in a moment of quiet as he represents in the 
text, but about <laughs> these larger social experiences that that um, that he can't help but mm-hmm. deeply consider. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how, even if that that may not even comport with your idea of quiet, but I'm wondering how you might respond to mm. that. Mm. Boy, you asked the question so uh, so compellingly, you know, and so or you you described it so beautifully that one can kind of get. I feel like I'm lost in your asking, right? Because it's so well asked that I think yes, you're right. Um, one response I might have, well, two responses I might I might have. One is to say that what Du Bois does in The Souls of Black Folk in its entirety, but especially in that first chapter, is a giant act for black culture and for black people. And so not just he's a product of his time, as, as, as if that sounds like some excusing of something that he didn't understand, but he was doing something deliberate and intentional in presenting ideas about black people that would not just advance black people in the contemporary moment that he was in, but that were also well beyond the time and moment that he he was in. And so I acknowledge that um, as, as much as I want to push against double consciousness as this powerful frame of understanding of black subjectivity, I also believe that it's true and accurate and powerful. The other thing I would say is if I can go to the personal, even after having said that, you know, I'm often not as comfortable with it. Many days when I wake up, um, even if I've had disturbing, complicated dreams, dreams that are socially relevant or politically relevant or anxieties about something that have to do at work, and so often many of those things are or are or can be traced back to being connected to race or gender or sexuality, right? These social ideas that my first awareness isn't of myself as a social subject. Um, and indeed, throughout the day, there are lots of moments when, and I think this is true for everyone, right? There are lots of moments when we just are, when we are our desires or our hungers or our anxieties or our rage or our fear when we are our agency um, and it is those moments like what what happens if all everything that's in the archives uh, that that describes black people's subjectivity and black people's experience and of course this is part of the problem right that um, that that black people have to be described right because uh, which which is part of um uh, it's an impossible thing because no human being can be captured in their entirety but because of how race operates that the characterization and representation of black people is especially significant to what we and by we I mean all of us in the in in whatever community we're thinking what we understand of black people and then of course people push back and counter those characterizations and so on and so if everything in the archive is either about or is read through thinking about 
the public experience of blackness. It just seems to me like we miss the the necessary reminder that we need, a reminder we shouldn't need, but that we need of, well, people who are black have interior lives, and those interior lives wander over all kinds of things that intersect with and sometimes don't intersect with racialization in particular. And I don't know that I, again, I want to go back to Maud Martha in a way that when mm-hmm. I read that book, um, uh, so much of what's powerful in that book for me is that the, the character in that book who's living in, in Chicago, in working class, working poor Chicago in the 1940s, right? This is the, the setting of the book. Um, and has all kinds of experiences that are that one could call even racist experiences or sexist experiences or experiences that um, are class marginalizing experiences. And sometimes she she encounters them that way. Sometimes she responds to them that way. And sometimes she doesn't encounter them that way. Sometimes she doesn't respond to them. Sometimes she's in the process of trying to figure out what to think about them. And for me, that helps me see that character in a fuller human textuality and is as and that scene is important to I guess my understanding her as a racial subject um, in full complexity. So that would be part of part of my response. But I will tell you, ever since I started talking about this idea of quiet early on, um, I have I've been figuring out how to respond to and address this question because the word quiet makes it sound like I'm saying <laughs> black people should be quiet, right? right. I, I once right. went to, right. to a talk and a couple older uh, black women came and, and after the talk they, they said, they, they said, you know, we came because we thought you were saying black people should be quiet and we're, we're, we understand now um, what you're trying to say and, and had this good engagement. They still had some questions, but... Um, you know, but you titled your 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 book, your uh, first book, I think, provocatively. <laughs> so I wasn't trying to be provocative. Right. I was simply trying to pick the best right. term I could, right? Right. Um, and and I have paid the consequences. I should tell you. That, well, I, I I I I'm sure you have. I've heard you talk about it, and I also have heard, you know, people. You know, we're in similar circles, right? So I've heard what people say about that title. I love your title. Thank I you. think you're talking about performance, and right? So Right. Why not? Here is my next question. Um, well, before before that, I have a I have a compliment. I think that your writing is exquisite. I think that there are moments in the book where you are um, deliberately or or just explicitly, even if not deliberately, um, poetic. Um, at the mm-hmm. end, the very end. I mean, it's throughout the book, but at the very end. When you're talking about Tommy Smith, Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics, you say their presence is not perfect, but it is excellent because it hints at the miracle of being alive. Oh, my goodness. Such beauty. Now, to me, when I read that, I was thinking, wow, <laughs> now that's sublime. You use the term sublime um, in the book to talk about some of the um effects of the uh, authors that you're writing about. Um, but I, I think that your work is also uh, sublime here. Uh, even after that, you say quiet is inevitable. Uh, one's full-orbed life, 
quiet is, which is which is also, I think, uh, really, really nicely executed. Mm. Here's my question. Um, and one of the last since I, we need to wrap up soon um, is there are a number of key concepts that circulate in your book. Uh, there's the concept of oneness that you uh, start to talk about towards the end. There is the um, concept of interiority. There is quiet, of course. Uh, there is surrender and vulnerability. I was wondering if you could highlight or emphasize one of these terms. Mm. That's a that's a good that's a good question. I think for me it would be either surrender or vulnerability and um perhaps I'll perhaps I'll do surrender. Um because I think all of these terms uh, connect to trying to construct an understanding of quiet. So part of what I was trying to do was to figure out how, how since quiet is such a common everyday term, that it's not necessarily an academic term or a scholarly term, and it has synonyms like silence that I try early on to disassociate it from or, or distinguish it from. I was trying to think, okay, so what are the ways that I can try to make the idea of quiet that I want to work with conceptual? Because I didn't just want it to be a behavior or an action. I wanted it to be a quality of being. And so I thought, so these terms, right, surrender, vulnerability, interiority, prayer is another term that comes up, waiting. These terms are all my attempt to try to figure out, like to say, and here's another inflection that I think is related to quiet. So I think I would pick surrender. And I would pick surrender because I think it relates to what, um, my reading of what Marita Bonner does in that essay that I that I talked about earlier. Um, surrender is one of those terms that has a very strong and um, almost negative connotation, especially in a culture that's, that's so familiar with war, for example, that surrender might seem as a giving up or a construction of a kind of a passive, you know, a passive thing to do, um, and yet surrender as uh, as any, anyone uh, who engages deeply many religious traditions, surrender is a deep and powerful and even explicit action. One has to engage and enact surrender. One has to give in. Now, again, these things are complicated, right, when you think about um, discourses of oppression or violence or the ways in which people are made to surrender. So I'm not ignoring that. Um, I'm not unaware of that. But I'm also aware of in every human being is that capacity to to give in, to yield to something. It's that gesture of someone, hmm, one is having a bad day, a terrible day, and you just are frustrated and you just, and you just want to be miserable because you're frustrated. And someone who knows you well enough, someone who loves you, can see this. And they can see that you want, don't want to be interacted with. But because they know you well enough and love you, they come up to you and they throw their arms around you. 
And in a moment, you decide, I don't want to be hugged. And in the moment of being hugged, that passes and you surrender to being hugged. That for me is an incredibly powerful human action. It's a place of agency. And how does one characterize, describe that? And then how does one imagine that that action is something that is a possibility in every human being who's black. Now, again, we know it's a possibility, right? I mean, you and I know because both of us are black and there's a way in which we know we're human beings. But if ideas of blackness always only circulate around the public discourses of blackness, it's, it's almost like we miss or lose this piece. And so for me, surrender becomes one of those terms that I try to use as a way to describe or flesh out some of the other qualities or capacities of quiet so that quiet doesn't just become an action, but it actually becomes like a, a concept, um, that ha- a concept that has a kind of full fleshiness and complexity. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Kevin, we have just enough time to hear you give voice to some of your prose. Would you mind doing that for us? Yes, I'll, I'll, I'll read a little bit. It was interesting to hear you talk about the right. You, you know what it is to write. You know how challenging writing is. Um, maybe I'll just read a little bit from the beginning because I think that might make most sense to readers, um, to listeners of the show. The story of this moment has been told many times. It is the 1968 Olympics in a volatile Mexico City and two male athletes, both black Americans, make an emblematic gesture during the medal ceremony for the 200 meter race. One of them, Tommy Smith, has won the race while the other, John Carlos, plays third. As the US national anthem plays, Both men punctuate the space above their heads with their black-gloved fists, Smith raising his right hand, Carlos his left. Their salute is a black power sign that protests racism and poverty and counters the anthem and its embracing nationalism. The third man on the podium standing to their right is Peter Norman, a white Australian who won the silver medal. Norman doesn't elevate his fist, but he wears an Olympic Project for Human Rights pin in solidarity with Smith and Collis's protest. The power of this moment is in its celebrated details, the clenched fist, the black gloves, the shoeless feet, details that confirm the resoluteness of the action. Since that day, commentators have memorialized the public assertiveness of Smith and Carlos's gestures. Their paired bodies have become a precise sign of a restless decade and especially of black resistance. But look again closely at the pictures from that day and you can see something more than the certainty of public assertiveness. See, for example, how the severity of Smith's salute is balanced by the yielding of Carlos's raised arm. And then notice how the sharpness of their gesture is complemented by one telling detail, that their heads are bowed as if in prayer, that Smith, in fact, has his eyes closed. The effect of their bowed heads is to suggest intimacy, 
and it is a reminder that this very public protest is also intimate. I'll stop there, but that's how the book opens for me, and in many ways, um, that's where the book began. It began with my own, if I could insert myself, if you could imagine me as a young person looking at that image and my own using it as a site of negotiation of myself, I'm a child of quiet, and I think I was reading quiet in that image and in some ways needed to try to figure out how to understand quiet so that I could read it in that image so that I could find for myself a home. Thank you for that. I think that it's conversations about works like yours that matters um, in our uh, areas and and disciplines, and I, I hope to see that this hope to see this book get um, a lot of um, uh, play because it definitely deserves it. Can you tell us what you're working on now? Um, I'm. I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I think I, I, the, the, the academic part to me wants to come up with something or at least to talk about the number of things that I'm invested in. But I, earlier in the pre-conversation, I loved that when you talked about an essay on Sula that you've been working on for a very long time. And what I love about that is not just the honesty of that, but I love the the sense that writing is one of the ways in which we come to understand mm -hmm. the world we're in more than it is something we do to get another piece out. Mm -hmm. So I'm very much interested right now in um, how black writers use aspects of the first person essay. I'm also interested in thinking about ideas about love, not romantic love, but thinking about love as a philosophical notion. Um, and so those are some of the the things that I'm thinking through. Um, and I'm doing work, but um, I can't yet say that I'm working on something new in a way that, um, that needs to be announced uh, publicly. But I am writing, and I am writing. I'm taking your invitation to write more from, from myself, from a, from a first-person standpoint. Very nice. We definitely look forward to uh, reading that and to engaging more from Kevin Kwashi, who is the author of The Sovereignty of Quiet, Beyond Resistance in Black Culture. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you so much for Sean. You've been listening to Kevin Kwashi discuss his new book, The Sovereignty of Quiet, Beyond Resistance in Black Culture, published by Rutgers University Press in 2012. If you have not already received your copy, please order yours today.